chapter 2. Judges chapter 2, page 373, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. This is God's holy word, and he gives it to us, his people, for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt. And led you into the land that I swore to give to your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now therefore I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called that place Bochim. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, The servant of the Lord died at the age of a hundred and ten, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath, Heres, and in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal in the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress." Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant that I laid down for their forefathers and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations. Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our children got a, kind of an interesting toy over the Christmas holiday. Little squares and uh, triangles filled with magnets that can stick one to another. You can build things like houses or airplanes. As toys go, I actually don't mind it that much. It's for their creativity and engineering skills and kind of stretches their brain a bit. So uh, I actually like when they get toys like this. But when we got them, we started playing with them. I was a little bit confused. Other similar toys we had had in the past, they would always stick together. And even if you had groups of three or four sticking together, try to join it together with another group of three or four pieces, everything would be perfect. They they would stick together. You would feel that magnetic attraction. But with these, uh, if one was already joined to another piece and you tried to join it to a third, then there would be, or another group of two, the magnetic attraction would be weak and sometimes it would even be repelling it. And so I was messing around with this for a little bit, and I discovered the issue, which is good because this is a toddler's toy. I discovered the issue, right? It's that if two pieces are sticking together and you try to join it with two other pieces, the magnetic attraction between those two is not going to necessarily be the same. In other words, as you're building something, you need to join one piece at a time to the group of the other pieces. And that establishes that kind of magnetic attraction. And when you do it that way, it's actually even a stronger magnetic attraction than the other toys that they had previously that were built in a similar way. I was thinking about this, obviously thinking deeply about this uh, toddler's toy, and I said this is, a, this is actually a, a perfect picture of the human heart. When the human heart is divided with an attraction to something else, and with that we can think of idolatry and worship, when the human heart is divided, it's not going to have the proper strong magnetic attraction and connection to that which it should be connected, to to that which, to which it should be connected, which is God. The book of Judges is supremely worried with this question, the state of the heart, and the divided heart, divided hearts of God's people, resulting, of course, in idolatry. What is it that creates a divided heart? We see in this chapter, which is a chapter that kind of gives a, a sweeping overview of the book of Judges. It rewinds and then tells the whole story on fast forward to give sort of a theological assessment. What we see is that God's people did not remember what God had done. They did not remember because it becomes clear that they were not recounting what God had done. And because of all that, with their divided hearts, they did not root out in their lives all that stood opposed to God. They did not remember. They did not remember because they did not recount. And because of all that, they did not root out all that stood against and opposed to God. What we find weaved throughout this chapter, however, is that whenever good things, whenever positive things do happen in and for God's people, it is all because of God's grace. The people of God never earn it. They never deserve it. It is a God who delights to show compassion and a God who delights to shower his grace upon his people. 
So what's going on in this chapter? As I mentioned, it's, it's a bit of a, a rewind and then the story told in fast forward. You remember in chapter one, there was a lot of discussion of the different tribes and the, the successes and failures of the tribes. Here we see the narrator basically talk about Israel. He's only talking about Israel as a whole, so he's viewing the nation as a whole, and he's doing it because what he's wanting to emphasize is the theological state of the nation. And what he focuses on is their divided hearts and their improper worship. He's theologically assessing all things. And so, remember in chapter 1, we read about the death of Joshua, after the death of Joshua. Well, this chapter actually rewinds to go back before Joshua dies, and then he dismisses them. We read about Joshua's death, and then we basically read about the whole era of the judges in Fast Forward, without anyone specifically mentioned, to give a sense of what we're to expect in the rest of this book. What are we going to expect? We should expect to meet idolatry, divided hearts, spiritual adultery, disobedience, evil, all of these kinds of things. So it's a lens through which to view the book. And it shows us that the book of Judges is really most concerned with that question of spiritual things. It's not primarily to give an apologetic defense or a case for the Davidic king. There may be aspects of that that we find here. But again, Judges is like a sermon. It's a writing to the people of God, the historical accounts of all that has happened, and it's saying, you are no longer recognizable as God's people. You need to return to the Lord in repentance and faith and faithfulness to all that he has called you to. You need to remember his covenant faithfulness and remember to live in the vitality of and the grace of his covenant. So as uh, we said, there is a, a, a forgetfulness in God's people here. We read from the very first part of this chapter that they had forgotten what God had done. They did not remember. The angel of the Lord comes to this place, Bokim. Bokim means weepers. So we know that This is ominously named. Something bad is going to happen. There's going to be despair at this kind of a place. We read of the angel of the Lord, really the messenger of the Lord. And the messenger of the Lord is speaking as God himself. And so many interpreters believe, conservative interpreters who believe this is God's word, would say that this is the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Christ, uh, coming in some form to address the people of God. And there is a recounting, there's a remembering and a restating of all the things that God has done for his people. Why are they here in the promised land? Why did they get out of Egypt? Why were they saved through the Red Sea and preserved in the wilderness and fed uh, the manna from heaven and all of those things? Why did that happen? It happened because of God. There's no other explanation. All of the activity, all of the action... The saving action is attributed to God and to God alone. I've brought you here. I'm the reason that you are here. I saved you. I delivered you. I preserved you. And now I have brought you to this place. But what has happened? They have acted in in disobedience. So the, the, the equation here is God showers his people with his grace With his deliverance, with his goodness, his people respond in disobedience. So there is this this 
disconnection that we see between what God has done and an appropriate response of his people. So this is to confront the people of God as they're first hearing or reading the book of Judges. It's to confront us with the same kinds of things. When we look at the disobedience of our own lives, the dividedness of our own hearts, we are to say that there is a massive disconnect between what God has done for us and what we do in response to it. Psalm 116 puts this before us and is a confronting passage for us. Psalm 116, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Right? We root our love for God in the realities of all that he has done for us. What has he done? He has saved us in his son. He has showered us with his grace. He has given us eternal life and the guarantees of heaven and eternal life with him. And so we love him. Later on, the psalm goes on to say, What shall I render to the Lord? What shall I give to him for all of his benefits to me? And and in a sense, we get the feeling that the psalmist here is saying, Whatever I give is not going to be enough. So I'm going to search my life. I'm going to search my heart to find something that I can give to God because of his kindness, because of his goodness, because of his grace. And it's still not going to be enough. And he says, I will lift up the cup of of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will worship him. I will give him praise. I will exalt his name. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. The Psalms say this. The scriptures say this to us. When we rightly remember what God has done. When we rightly consider all the things that God has done, we, we can't not be moved to love him more. We will be moved to love him more when we rightly consider and remember what he has done. I think this is one of the main reasons that we see God has given us one day in seven in order to recount his mighty deeds. What is it that we're doing when we come together for worship? We're coming together to recount the mighty works and deeds of God. We're coming together to be told in the forgetfulness of our minds and hearts, this is what God has done for you. Have you ever sat down to pray and you feel like it's been too long since you last prayed? Maybe days, maybe weeks. And you sit down to pray and all of a sudden you, you, you say to yourself, oh my goodness, look at all the things that God has done for me. And I've been living these last several weeks in complete blindness to his goodness. I haven't considered what he's done for me. I haven't considered the salvation of my soul. This is a divided heart. You, usually you can draw a straight line between a genuine church attendance where we come to come to hear the word of God, someone who's willingly sitting under the preaching of the word of God and prayer and devotional life. You can draw a straight line between those three things and the state and the health of someone's soul. Not 100% of the time, but usually someone who's coming to hear the word of God proclaimed and preached someone who is seeking God through the blessing and the medium of prayer, someone who is trying to fill Uh, one's life with the word of God and the truth of God, usually those are going to be telltale signs of the health of a soul. But Israel has not remembered. And so God says very simply, I'm no longer going to be your offensive weapon. 
Because of your disobedience, because you have disobeyed me, because you have strayed from me, I'm no longer going to be your offensive weapon. In chapter 20, uh, or sorry, chapter 2, verse 20, he says, Because this nation has violated the covenant that I laid down for their forefathers and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. We also see that this is what God is primarily concerned with as well. It's not just the author of the book of Judges. God is mostly concerned with the heart of his people. He wants their heart. He wants their devotion. He wants their love in light of all that he has done for them. He's not primarily concerned with giving them these pieces of land in Canaan, though that is part of his plan as well. This also tells us about the book of Judges. It's really not a book of offensive movement of God's people. They're not going to be taking new land in any of the battles that we read about in Judges. What they're constantly going to be doing is fighting off oppressors. They're going to be trying to keep people out of the land they already possess. So God keeps his word here. He keeps his word. It's no longer about offensive movement. It's really just about survival. It's a book of of cycles. God's people constantly go through this cycle of disobeying, of rebelling against God. Then an oppressor comes. Then they groan under that oppression. And then God, in his grace, will send a deliverer. He will send a judge, someone to bring about some temporary relief. But it's not just the same circle over and over again. In other words, each cycle is further down the hill. There's a a descending nature to these cycles. Each cycle gets worse. The rebellion in each successive cycle is going to be worse and worse in terms of the nature, the, the degree of evil. It's going to be more and more evil and more and more detestable what God's people are doing. That's the view of this chapter, and this is uh, the, the view of the book as a whole, that you've become unrecognizable. You're God's people, you say, but you've become unrecognizable. How does something remain what it is? How, how do a people, how does a people group remain true to its values and its identity? It must recount and reteach Primarily to its children, but it must recount and reteach from generation to generation what its core values are, what its identity is, what it, what it does, what does the community do, how is it known, what are the kinds of things that define it. This is what God's people have always known they must do. Psalm 145, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Right? We all agree with that. But then it says, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. This is where it gets more difficult. Yes, God is great. Yes, God is greatly to be praised. But the responsibility placed upon God's people is to recount and reteach and instill to its children the goodness of God and all that God has done. This is a paraphrase of a quote from Herman Bovink, but he says this about how this is particularly a distinctive of the Reformed and are and what we confess 
as Reformed Christians. It says this, Christian nurture that occurs in the family, the Christian school, and the church characterizes Reformed education and upbringing distinct from other wings of the church, Baptists, Methodists, Anglicans, etc. We believe in the unity and organic development of spiritual life, and that as a rule for those raised in the church, faith and repentance often do not come suddenly, but develop as an implanted spiritual life through gradual progression. This is a distinctive of the Reformed, and this is is part of our tradition as people, as a church in the Reformed tradition, in the Reformed confessions, that we see God's faithfulness from generation to generation. It's not as if all of a sudden our children turn 12 and 13 and boom, they have all of this understanding about God and Christ and the gospel. No, we see it grow. An implanted nature of spiritual life from their youngest age where they can learn to speak about Jesus Christ, where they can learn to understand and know forgiveness. This is why we are so diligent in proclaiming the mighty acts of God to our children that one generation may follow the next and remember what God has done. This was the, the failure of Israel. There was a generation that grew up around Joshua that had seen great things like Jericho or whatever, and they knew the mighty acts of God, but they failed in recounting the mighty acts of God. And a generation rose up that did not know what God had done, that did not know what God had done. And that certainly is a tragedy. When I was a student in public school, we used to have civics that was required during our middle school years. And this was a class that essentially existed to teach you how to be a good American citizen. What is it that America stands for? How how are you a good, how can you be a good citizen when you become an adult? Today, it's my understanding that that's no longer happening in schools. And this shows why there's all of this confusion now about what America actually stands for, what are the values of uh, that the founders of our republic had, and what does it mean to be a good citizen? And very famously, Benjamin Franklin, right after the the, uh, Constitution had been adopted, was walking through Philadelphia, and a woman says, what kind of, sir, what kind of government have you given to us? And uh, he says, this is legend, but some people think it happened. He said, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. And his point there was to say, if, you don't, if the citizens of this nation don't take upon themselves the responsibility of all that is going to be happening in the government, it's not going to survive. There is going to be a keeping of this that needs to, that needs to, be happen, that needs to happen through education. We're not just zapped with an understanding of how to be a proper American. And likewise, the same is true spiritually. If we do not take the time to recount God's mighty acts and to teach them to our children, the heirs of the covenant, how can we expect that they will love the Lord in the same way that we do? A whole generation had been gathered to their fathers. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. This is generational failure. This is a tragedy in the midst of God's people. The assumption here is that the Levitical priests have failed in uh, having the people keep the various feasts for the Jewish calendar. The Jewish religious calendar was encircled around God's mighty acts. It was a feast for creation. They, They celebrated the creation of all things. Passover, 
is that the family comes together and they tell their children, they, they show their children that when we were in Egypt, when your ancestors were in Egypt, we literally put blood on the doorposts and for all the families who had done that, the firstborn was spared and in the land of Egypt, whoever did not do that, the firstborn was taken. I'm teaching the mighty acts of God to our children. That's the kind of thing that raises a religious curiosity and instills in them a desire for religious devotion. So you take all of that into consideration. The priests have failed. They're not keeping the feast. They're not coming together as God's people. What is the antidote for generational failure? Proper worship. Biblical worship. And being faithful to the practice of worship for all ages. This is why we celebrate the truth that our children need to be taught worship and how to worship from a young age. Tragically, churches who have tended to view the attender more as a consumer than a disciple have built out separate Sunday programming for, for children, even all the way up through age 18, so that someone may go to a church building and even into their teen years, they've never actually been to church. And then we have all of these studies asking the question, well, why are these young people going off to college and then they, they, they don't go to church? Well, because they've never been to church. They went to a church building, but they weren't in the midst of God's people worshiping him according to the scriptures and how the scriptures prescribe. The result of this failure to remember and recount, of course, is that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, Idolatry, which is described in this chapter as spiritual adultery. They served the Baals and the Ashtaroths. And here we have a a duo of two Canaanite deities, a a male and female pair that promised uh, prosperity and security. These were gods of, of weather and fertility, Baal and Ashtaroth. And the, the, the mindset back then, the worldview, is that when you went into new land, when you went into new territory, there were local deities, there were gods of this tribe and that tribe, and really this land was something that belonged to this other god. This is land that belongs to Baal. This is land that belongs to Ashtaroth. This is This is land that belongs to Molech. God's people were to live with a different worldview, weren't they? They were were to live with the worldview that God is king and Lord of all. No matter where we go, this is land, this is territory that belongs to him. It's all his. So God's people were to have a fearlessness that the God who created all things, who spoke all things into existence, who created every beast of the field and bird of the air, who created all the creeping and crawling things, every plant that they see, they worshipped that God and thus all of the earth was his. And when they went into the promised land, they were to live with a confidence that they were serving God the God who was Lord of all, but they didn't do this. They were were enticed by the gods of the other lands. They were tempted by the the peace and prosperity uh, uh, that these gods were promising, these gods of weather and fertility, so people would worship them so that they could coax these gods into giving them the right kinds of weather, the right kinds of abundance. They were also enticed 
by the pagan rituals that defined the worship of these Canaanite peoples. Sex and pleasure rituals, which was in stark contrast to the kinds of worship that the God of Israel called them to. Morally sound worship and sober-mindedness and living in ways that reflect the values and the morality that God had called them to. The result of this, as we see in the beginning of the chapter, is their idolatry, their spiritual adultery, they're seeking prosperity, they're seeking liberation, they're seeking security. They say, well, maybe we can, maybe we can coax Baal into serving us a little bit, and maybe God will still love us enough so that all things will be well with him too. Maybe we can kind of fuse these two things together. And God says, you are seeking liberation. You are seeking total freedom, and what it becomes is a snare and a trap to you. This is what sin always does. It always overpromises, and it always underdelivers. Sin always promises freedom and liberation, and it always produces enslavement. This is what the scriptures teach to us. What is freedom? Freedom is living in Christ by the power of the Spirit as God brings us more and more into conformity with his will and his law. That is true freedom, when we can say no to the things that seek to enslave us. This is really, this was the idea of liberty, even at the founding of our nation. The word liberty is that all people, because they are made in the image of God, all people have the freedom to pursue virtue. They don't have the freedom to pursue vice and sin. Liberty means you are free to pursue things that are good and true and beautiful. All people have the freedom to do that. But people don't have the freedom just to run off into things that destroy themselves and destroy others. That's not what liberty means. Compare that with the thinking of today. What is the thinking we are confronted with today? People must be free to pursue anything at all they want or think they may want, and none of us has any right to tell anyone anything about what they should or should not pursue. People need to be totally unconnected from anything so that all that they do is pursue their interests and their desires. What a terrible and horrible view of freedom. And and that's not freedom, that's enslavement. Right? We are not free to abort our children in the womb because we want to pursue an acting career. No one is ultimately free to do that. Doing so entraps someone in sin and destruction. And what is the result? What is the result as we look at our world around us? People completely enslaved to various sins in ways that we've never seen before. And we see that our society is fraying, it's coming apart. Theologian David Wells makes a really good point that the more and more that the idea of absolute and total liberation and freedom has been held up in our society as something to pursue, the more and more our government has had to grow in order to to govern a people that can't govern themselves. The more and more people pursue absolute, total freedom and liberation, the more and more the government has had to grow in order to govern a people who who can no longer govern themselves. And I bring up that point just to show that sin, when sin is pursued, it does not create freedom. It produces enslavement. 
There is this willingness to live with sin and evil and God's people did not root out all that God had commanded them to do. You must smash the altars of the Canaanite gods. You must destroy their false worship. You must root it out. But of course, they don't do that. And as they don't do that, what do we see? We see an increase in all of this disobedience and evil. And that brings us to consider, well, what about the good things that happen? What about the good things that happen to God's people in the book of Judges? What's it from? It's from God's grace. It's all because of God's grace. There's never going to come a point in the book of Judges. By the way, we see some, something like repentance here in chapter 2. The angel of the Lord puts all these realities before the people of God. They repent. You're never going to see that again in the book of Judges. There's never going to be a a realization that we really need to repent of all of our sins. It's just going to be cycle after cycle. They're going to be oppressed. God's going to send a judge to, uh, to effect deliverance for God's people. And the point is that it's all of God's grace. Every good thing that happens to God's people in the book of Judges is God's grace and God's grace alone. And what does this do? But it it points our attention, it throws our attention to our lives to where we realize that all of the good things that we have in our life, all of the good things that we have are because of God's grace, his unmerited favor. We, We didn't do anything to deserve it. We can't do anything to deserve it. We're never going to look at our lives and say, oh yeah, when God gave me that, that, that's something that I earned on my own, right? And the ultimate manifestation of God's grace in Jesus Christ, which judges will show us is something we desperately need because of all the breaking of the covenant that we see in judges. They broke God's covenant. They violated his law. They turned from him. We need someone who comes for us and keeps the covenant. Someone who keeps the law, who has an unflinching and perfect righteousness so that we can read in the proclamation of the gospel that while we were still sinners, while we were still rebels, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. And that's the good news of our salvation. That at the very time that Christ was working out his salvation for us, we were still at enmity with God. We were his rebels. We were his his enemies. We were sinners. There's nothing that we could ever do to deserve God's grace. And that's what Judges is about. It shows us the, the evil in the human heart. It shows us that God wants our heart and our divided hearts. It shows us that if we ever are to serve and love God in a way that pleases him, it's all going to be of his grace. John Newton summed it up well, of course, the author of Amazing Grace. He said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. The scriptures say, grow in Grace. Of course, you have grace at the beginning of the Christian life where we realize that Christ died for my sins. We, we realize that, that while I was still an enemy, Christ died for us. There's this divine love that is so great that it overcomes our sinfulness. It overcomes the evil in our hearts. And then the scriptures say, grow in grace, walk in grace, live in grace. 
so that we realize that as we seek God more and more and he brings about this life that is more pleasing to him, it still can only be attributed to the grace of God. And thus, God receives all of the glory. He receives all of the glory for the things in our life because even in our Christian obedience that we are to render to him, We still say it's only because of God's grace. It's God graciously pouring out his love in me, graciously giving me his spirit so that he might produce in me someone who is more conformed to the image of Christ. But God gets all of the glory because it's all by his grace anyways. So we say along with John Newton, I am not what I ought to be. I'm not what I should be. There's no denying that. I am not uh, what I want to be. I wish I were better. I'm not that. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. I'm not what God is going to produce in me at the last day. But yet I'm not what I used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's by his grace. It's all of his grace. And so may our lives be an exalting and a magnifying of God's grace as well as we realize more and more that everything good, anything good, is all by the grace of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you. We pray that you would bestow upon us your grace and your spirit, uh, that we might love you more, that we might rightly consider all that you've done. Give us the courage and the diligence to recount all of your mighty acts to our children, that one generation shall commend your works to another. And we pray that you would do all of this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We end by singing number 390.